Welcome to CMS On Air, the podcast on migration and refugee issues, brought to you by the Center for Migration Studies of New York. I'm Emma Winters, CMS's Communications Manager. In just a moment, you'll hear a conversation between Michelle Pistone, Jack Hefner, and Daniela Alulema. Michelle and Jack, non-resident fellows for CMS, asked Daniela about her paper, DACA and the Supreme Court, how we got to this point, a statistical profile of who is affected, and what the future may hold for DACA beneficiaries. Daniela is the Center for Migration Studies Director of Programs, and she authored the paper for CMS's Journal on Migration and Human Security in 2019. In this episode, she shares her own immigration story, highlights from the recent paper, and her hopes for a permanent solution for DACA recipients. Hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Jack Hefner, and with me is Michelle Pistone. And um, from about right before the uh, Trump administration took office till right before after, we were editors of the Journal on uh, Migration and Human Security. And we thought it would be interesting to, now that the, there's been a change in administrations, to talk to people who wrote articles for the journal in that period and to ask them about uh, the articles and their thoughts about them now and, and maybe prospects for the future, what might happen in the areas they wrote about. And uh, as our first guest, we have uh, Daniela Alulema. Uh, she um, is an old friend. She works at uh, CMS, which publishes the journal. And we thought it'd be good to start with a friend because they, that will uh, she'll be more forgiving. And uh, so uh, welcome to our podcast, Danielle. Thank you, Jack. Thank you, Michelle. It's a pleasure to be here. So we wanted to begin with a little bit about your background. Uh, can you tell us how long you've been involved with immigration issues? Sure. Um, I first got involved, in, well, I think it's been about 13 years. Um, that I've been in some capacity involved in the immigrant rights movement, um, and most recently as a director of programs at CMS. I've been with CMS for the last almost seven years, um, and I've worn different hats. I joined the organization in 2014, and I've seen the different stages of growth of CMS. Um, I currently serve as director of programs where I oversee some of its programs, including the Catholic Immigrant Integration Initiative. I also support and, and lead some of the research projects uh, that CMS conducts, um, and also provide some support on the fundraising and administrative side. You're really a jack of all trades. I know you also moderate panels and <laughs> do things like that. Keep busy. <laughs> I'm up for the challenge, yes. I've learned a lot at CMS. What drew you to the um, immigration field in the first place? So I have a, a personal connection to immigration. Um, I'm an immigrant myself. My family and I had to migrate. Uh, we came to New York in 2001 because of political and economic turmoil in our home country. Unfortunately, to this day, um, I remain undocumented. And this immigration status has created a lot of obstacles uh, through these 20 years of, of uh, life here in New York. It has produced a lot of frustration and, and desperation, you know, because as a young person, you have a lot of dreams, a lot of aspirations, and you are in the land of opportunities. But unfortunately, because of 
an immigration status that's out of our control. Uh, many of us are not able to pursue the careers or the dreams that we have. So when I was in college, this frustration motivated me to take some control. So I became an activist. I joined an organization that's undocumented youth-led where we advocated for equal access to higher education uh, for the DREAM Act. So we organized, uh, we lobbied in Washington, conducted civil disobedience actions, but most importantly, we empowered ourselves. We reclaimed our voices and our stories and uh, we created a community because I think this used to happen a lot to undocumented young people. Uh, we felt alone, we felt like we were the only ones who were going through this, this issue. So just finding a community meant made a huge difference because finally we became visible. And in 2009, it was when as a national movement, we were able to declare ourselves undocumented, unafraid and unapologetic, which gave us a lot of visibility and I think more uh, political power uh, to push for issues that matter to our community. So that's in a nutshell, uh, you know, how I became involved in immigration. After my, my, my years as an activist, I decided to dedicate my work to migration issues. So I believe that migration policy should be created based on facts and should include the people who are directly, directly impacted by issues. So that's what motivated me to, to join and, and to remain at the Center for Migration Studies, where we study international migration, but also try to promote policies that uh, protect the rights and dignity of migrants and refugees. Well, one of those policies uh, would be the one you wrote about uh, in your article uh, for the journal. And um, let me read the uh, title, DACA and the Supreme Court, how we got to this point, a statistical profile of who was affected and what the future may hold for DACA beneficiaries. What do you want to say about this article? Uh, yeah. It's only a few years later, but uh, there has been a change in administrations. And so uh, there are some new uh, developments that are important. So talk about it and then we will comment a little on it as well. So uh, through this paper, I wanted to provide an, a portrait of who are DACA recipients. And just to quickly mention DACA, um, DACA stands for Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. It's a program uh, created by President Obama um, in June, it was announced in June of 2012, and it provides a temporary uh, work permit and deferral of, from deportation to eligible immigrants who came into the country as children or as minors and fulfills uh, several requirements. So. At the peak of the program, there were about 800,000 young immigrants who had a active DACA status. As of September of 2019, that's the data set that uh, we used, uh, that I used for this paper, uh, there were over 650,000 active DACA recipients. So with the paper- so active, active means um, that uh, there's a discrepancy of about 175 or 200,000 people there. People who didn't renew their applications, is that it? Exactly. People who didn't renew or who maybe were able to adjust their status All right, um, right. after uh, having DACA. So, but I think the, the larger portion is uh, those who decided not to renew their, their, um, their status. And that, of course, it's totally reasonable given the administration that we, we had at the time. 
So there was some fear of of giving out information and addresses and contact information of, of that sort, right? Exactly. Yeah, with DACA, it is a very meticulous process because we you need to provide pretty much your entire life story. Uh, you need to tell the government where you live, where you have lived in the past. You need to provide proof of residence of, you need to show that it provides some sort of documentation that verifies that you have lived in the United States since 2007. So you're opening up not only your own life, but also potentially putting at risk family members who may live with you or who may be part of your circle. So it is, it, it takes a, a, a large vote of confidence to come forward and provide that much information to, to the government. And at the time, of course, we, as young immigrants, we were excited about the program, what it could do for us, but we never thought that we would be under such, a, such an administration, um, you know, as it, the Trump administration was. So coming back for a second to the paper, um, I, I wanted to capture this, uh, this portrait um, of DACA recipients, you know, how deep their ties are uh, to the country, uh, what the impact of the program is and has been on their lives, and also what it would mean if the program ended. So I wanted to share not only a statistical portrait, but also some of the stories so we can see the human side of the program. I wanted to recount how the program has changed their lives and also go into some of the concerns that uh, beneficiaries have about the possible termination of the program. And at the time when I wrote the paper, we still didn't have a decision from the Supreme Court about whether the way that the Trump administration ended the program was lawful. So this created, of course, these were months of anxiety and uncertainty. At least to me, it brought back many of those feelings that I had um, as a young college student where I didn't have any control over my future. So I wanted to use this paper to uh, provide that, that aspect of our lives. And although the Supreme Court um, issued a positive uh, decision in, in June of last year, um, DACA is once again at risk, you know, given the, the case in Texas where Texas and uh, I believe six other states are, um, arguing that DACA has created an unnecessary burden on their resources and are questioning whether the program is constitutional. So uh, we're, I, I feel like we're still on that limbo. Um, of course, we're happy that the Biden administration has um, very vocally claimed its support for the program, but um, we know that it's, it's not over. DACA is and remains just a temporary stopgap and uh, a solution to this issue requires a more permanent uh, legislative fix. So you said um, earlier, D Daniela, that you, as part of this paper, interviewed people who were DACA recipients and wanted to capture how DACA has impacted their lives and also the, the fact the, their undocumented status. So could you tell us a little bit of, about how this impacts individuals and their families? Absolutely. So, yeah, um, I think sometimes in academic or policy papers, um, we miss the humanity of the person or the group that we're studying. Um, you know, and, and unfortunately, the Trump administration tried to do that. It wanted to rob us from our humanity. 
um, by creating fear and hatred and, and xenophobia. Also, I think the sometimes the nuances of issues can be missed when we only talk about um, economic contributions um, or we just focus on, on that aspect of an issue. So to me, it was very important to share the testimonies of DACA recipients. Um, and I interviewed a few for, for this paper. Um, and in, in the paper, we hear about uh, a law student who attends Rutgers University um, and is a DACA recipient. And she wanted to use uh, her degree to help others in her community. So she talks about how DACA allowed her to do things that maybe some people take for granted, like be able to drive and go into federal buildings. Um, with DACA, she was able to interpret for others in court. And um, at this point, I think recently she graduated and finally is able to, will finally be able to practice. Um, we also hear about the story of um, a young immigrant who used to love math and science as a child and uh, was always interested in a career in medicine. Um, so when he joined the immigrant rights movement, he realized that there were many social injustices. So he used his interest and his, his passion in medicine. Um, and now, thanks to DACA, he's a resident at a hospital in the Northwest and is working in the front lines of the pandemic. Um, but in the paper, we also go beyond career and academic aspirations. Um, we also have the stories of DACA recipients who are now parents and have begun families in, in the United States. And with that, they have deepened their ties to, to the country even, even more. Um, so I wanted to provide not only the demographic uh, profile of, of uh, this group, but also um, show how complex, um, you know, as any human being is, uh, DACA recipients are, you know, we are people with aspirations and dreams um, and who are also deeply affected by, by this issue where because of our immigration status, we constantly question our belonging, our identity, um, there are issues of mental health in the community. So um, it, is a, it is a complex issue that, um, you know, we need to remind ourselves and, and our policymakers of um, the humanity um, that's in question. Yeah, that's really helpful. And it's helpful to see it from a human perspective and also to see how many people are impacted by decisions uh, that, that, you know, on their face just impact one DACA recipient. But as you said, these are individuals who are part of communities, parts of families, and sometimes we forget um, how, you know, the ramifications of not being able to move around freely and even relate and be in, in the presence of family members. I, one of the stories also from your paper is, um, talks about the travel restrictions of immigrants who are undocumented. And so you told a story of a young man who was able to go back to Ecuador to see his grandmother who he hadn't seen in many years because mm -hmm. as a DACA recipient, um, he was finally able to get advanced parole and leave the country. Absolutely, yeah. Um, one of the benefits of the DACA program is advanced parole. And a, we don't have an exact number of how many DACA recipients have been able to use this, um, this legal channel to travel abroad. But we know um, anecdotally that uh, hundreds have been able to go, to go back to their countries, visit family members that they haven't seen in decades in some cases 
Others have been able to expand, um, <clears throat> use advanced parole for work purposes. Um, others have been able to study abroad um, thanks to, to this, this possibility. Um, one aspect, and I think something to keep in mind for the future with advanced parole is that um, it is it, it, one of the grounds for for its approval is human. It has to be a humanitarian related reason. Uh, related reason, um, and in many times, uh, the agency who adjudicates the, the the paperwork, USCIS, wants to see you know either a, you need to visit a nil uh, family member or maybe attend a funeral. So we should ask. Um, we should um, have the government. Um, also include more positive reasons to visit family, not only uh, you know sad situations, but also family reunification. Advanced parole should be used for for that purpose as well. Well, um, let's let's move on from the article, which I think is really really good and interesting because it does have a lot of facts, a lot of demographic information, and then you do have this personal testimonies really that make the information come alive. So it's a fantastic article, uh, DACA in the Supreme Court, it's called, in the, in the Journal uh, on Migration and Human Security. Um, the, the, I think it's the last line of the article says, um, you're talking about the, the Supreme Court decision, which was then coming up, uh, pending, and you said uh, uh, something, you said uh, the Supreme Court should act justly and wisely. Um, uh, I guess the question is, uh, well, it was a pretty good decision, I guess, in the past, but you mentioned that the case in Texas and potential future litigation. Um, what do you expect in the future? Do you have any expectations as to whether the court, uh, to the extent it did act justly and wisely in the, in the prior case, will continue to do so? Yes, of course, we, we, hope, we hope so. Um, I think we have, we have shown um, through many years of work, uh, you know, how DACA recipients are willing and committed to contribute. Uh, we are active uh, members of, of our communities. Um, and we are Americans in everything by pa but paper. So um, another example of that is the, the high numbers of DACA recipients who are essential workers, um, who are pretty much in every occupation and industry um, that's deemed essential. Um, in the middle of this pandemic. Um, so that's just another illustration of how embedded DACA recipients are in, in the United States um, fabric. Um, we of course hope that the Supreme Court, if you know it, the, the case goes back to, um, this case in Texas goes to the Supreme Court, that it will side um, with uh, DACA recipients. And, um, but of course, given the new, uh, composition of the court, um, that's still a huge question mark. Um, but I do think there are other um, other policy actions that could potentially be taken. Um, one, I think it's uh, at the local and state level, uh, a priority should be to assist as many first-time applicants as possible. DACA has been reopened for first-time applicants um, uh, since December of 2020. Um, given the rescission by the Trump administration in 2017, many DACA recipients who did not have, uh, who, who were not old enough to apply yet, 
or who didn't have the financial funds to apply or didn't meet the educational requirement, the requirements were not able to apply for the program. So now we have a new generation of eligible DACA recipients um, who may need support. Um, so we need to reactivate those networks um, of community-based organizations, legal providers, uh, local policymakers, fund rate, um, philanthropists as well, to make sure that this new generation um, is able to obtain their work permit and, and um, social security number and deferral from deportation. Um, I think at the federal level, we need a permanent fix. The first DREAM Act was introduced it's in 2001. It's been 20 years since the DREAM Act has been um, in Congress. Um, it's been voted on in 2010, for instance. It passed the House, but we were five votes short in the Senate, so it didn't become law. So it's it's been a, a really painful and long-winded wait. Um, so the solution here needs to needs to include a permanent uh, fix and a path to citizenship. Um, that's the only way to ensure that we address um, all this 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 entire this entire issue. What is your sense of um, the likelihood of that coming to pass in the next couple of years? I think we have a realistic chance. Um, it will require bipartisan support. So we'll need to make sure that we have um, quite a few Republican senators um, and, and um, representatives um, on our side. Um, there's a significant uh, public support. Uh, there have been several polls that show that um, the majority of Americans support uh, a path to citizenship for undocumented young people um, or DACA recipients or who arrived as children uh, to the United States. So it will require a concerted effort um, of advocate, advocates and organizers to make sure that we're able to secure that Republican support. Um, it will not be an easy path, but definitely I think it's, it's doable and it's definitely long, long overdue. Well, we'd love to hear what your goals are for, for the next year. Um, Go to a restaurant. <laughs> Get the vaccine. Um, well, personally, I'm um, <clears throat> um, I'm trying to stay positive, um, not only because of the pandemic, but of course, um, given the 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 uncertainty of the DACA program um, and. I think I'm trying to to also stay positive that you know we we have a new administration in place and um, but that doesn't mean that we need to stop pushing uh, for change um, and making sure that we keep our elected officials accountable. So um, at this point, I'm uh, conducting other research projects at CMS. Um, one in particular is looking at the impact of fear. Um, on, on how immigrants access benefits and services in New York City. So it's an exciting project um, that will definitely take for take uh, most of the year uh, to complete. So um, I'm trying to not only gather more testimonials and stories uh, from immigrants, but also if possible, connect them with resources and also use um, this research project as a way to educate policymakers and others who work with immigrants. So that's on the works. 
Well, thanks so much, Daniela. It was great to have you and to hear about DACA and your important work bringing um, the voices of immigrants to the forefront. And we really enjoyed your article in JMHS and would recommend that others look it up. Yes. And read it. For sure. Thank you so much, Jack. Thank you, Michelle. It was a pleasure to talk to you both. If you want to learn more about the Center for Migration Studies Journal on Migration and Human Security, please visit cmsny.org slash jmhs. CMS On Air's theme music is provided by The Music Case. For more podcasts like this one, you can follow CMS On Air on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. To find a full transcript of this episode, or get more information on CMS's research, publications, and events, visit us at cmsny.org.